Good morning. Good morning. If you don't know me, well, actually, whether you know me or not, my name is Sam. <laughs> it's good to be with you. I will reiterate what a blessing Tom Julian has been to our body, and it's so great to have you here, Tom. I knew things were looking up when I saw him at light rail, so. Uh, For those of you who have been with us, you know that we wrapped up the book of Exodus last week, um, our series in Exodus, and that um, Kip added two bonus sermons, um, director's cuts, uh, perhaps, as follow-ups. This week, uh, we are doing together this morning the entire book of Hebrews, Um, And then next week, um, Kip is going to do like two chapters of Galatians. (laughs) Uh, But I am serious, we're doing the whole book, so I'm going to tell you a couple things right up front. One is that I'm not going to be waiting for you to get to scripture passages, Um, so I'm going to keep moving because I think I'm literally reading several hundred verses uh, this morning, or at least well over a hundred. So I'm going to keep moving. So um, I think a physical Bible is probably easier to, uh, to track with me, but if you have the device, you'll figure that out, I guess, um, going back to your menus. Um, I'm going to do one other thing, and that is tell you the point of the sermon right now. I'm going to give you my points, because usually I, I like to tell it um, kind of like as a, as a present we're unwrapping together. It's always exciting for me to unwrap it and see where we land. Uh, I, usually have, I usually know where we're going to land. Um, But this morning, I want to tell you the point of the sermon, because I want you to be tracking with it. And here it is. Jesus and his work is the fullness that the law could only picture. Exodus was great, right? Jesus and his work is the fullness that the law could only picture. So Jesus is the fullness of Exodus. And here are two points to the message. Point one, Jesus is the priest for real. We saw the priesthood there in Exodus. We see what they did. It's a really big deal. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the priest, the high priest, for real. Point two, his work at the cross was the real sacrifice. We saw the sacrifices in in Exodus. If you read the rest of the Pentateuch, you get to see other sacrifices. Jesus, his work at the cross is a real sacrifice. And then there is a bonus point three that isn't in your notes because it is so intricately tied to point two. But point three is that he offers that sacrifice in the real temple. Real priest, real sacrifice, real temple. Let's go to chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God the Father had sent text messages. He had emailed us. He had sent letters. He had sent servants. He had sent spokesmen. Finally, he sent 
his son, the son, the second person of the Trinity who is the exact radiance of God's glory and representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful hand. And if you recall, Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yahweh showed up when the Son showed up. The rest of chapter 1, first part of chapter 2, points out that the Son is a bigger deal than the angels because because the Son was decreed to be a son, not a servant. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 10, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, that is, Jesus, the Son, perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to, be co- to call them brothers. The Son, the exact representation of the Father, he who spoke all things into existence is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. You ever been embarrassed of your siblings? Amen. As failing and as weak as you and I are, he is not ashamed to be called our brothers. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Would you note, when we think of Jesus coming to save us from our sins, we think of him coming to save the church, don't we? That's like always my, well, maybe you don't, but that's always my first thought is, oh yeah, I'm so glad Jesus came to save the church. Did you catch what it just said? Jesus came to save Abraham's descendants, those who up until the time that he came had been in slavery to the fear of death. Jesus came to redeem Israel and to free them from their sins. Super important to keep that in mind. By the way, the book is called Hebrews. I'm going to give you five guesses. No, I'll give you one guess. To whom was it written? It was written to Hebrews. It was written to Jews who were at the time of Christ. Um, They had become Messianic Jews or they had become Christian Jews, but they were Jews who had their own history and their ancestry. And if we're, depending on when the timing is, they may have just lost their temple. Temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Most people put the writing of, Ex- or of Exodus, of Hebrews between 70 and 100. And there they are, suffering persecution without their temple, perhaps wondering what in the world is going on. Have we lost everything again? And what they're going to find out is no, they have gained everything. Verse 17. For this reason, he made them. He he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted and is able to help those who are being tempted. He's a priest for real, and he became just like you and me. You and I have flesh and blood. We are frail, we are weak, and Jesus became frail and weak like you and me. Verse Uh, or chapter three. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. 
He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Um, You see a great house, and you're like, well, that's a fantastic house. But you know the house didn't spring up from the earth. Someone went and built that house, and that person gets more glory. Well, for every, house, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. So our brother is the son who is over God's house. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 15 of of 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was made flesh and blood so that he would understand our frailty, our weakness, but he was also made flesh and blood so that he could be tempted. Have you ever been tempted? Yeah, thank you. Like one person over here is like, I think he's joking. Yeah, of course we have. Um, we, we are tempted, and Jesus was tempted, but you know what? We will never know temptation like Jesus did because Jesus never said, okay, fine. His suffering and temptation went far beyond what we will ever, and to the point that he sweat blood in the garden. And yet he never sinned. Chapter 5. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he had to offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as the sins of the people. And so we get to see here the beauty of the Aaronic, that is the the sons of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood that is established there in Exodus is that the priests, the high priests, could understand their people because they were like them. The problem is those priests sinned. Verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. Think about that. Christ, the God-man, did not say, I'm going to make myself a priest. Although he could have. He didn't. The Father said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of my favorite uh, characters in scripture, and he is not a rabbit trail. We often get hung up and like, do we start arguing about Melchizedek? And I would love to argue about Melchizedek. Arguing is one of my favorite things to do. But we're not doing that because that isn't the author's point. The author's point is to say, look, Melchizedek shows up in scripture, no parents, no lineage, not of the line of Aaron, and yet he is a priest of the Most High God. How did he get to be one? He was declared one. Yahweh can do whatever he wants. And so he declares Melchizedek to be a high priest. Look at chapter 7. Melchizedek was the king of Salem 
and the priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So remember, Abraham was living in the land of Canaan. He was um, not being treated very well. Um, and his son, or his nephew rather, was abducted in a battle by a, a king, taken up north. He rallies his own military and goes up and defeats the kings of the north and brings Lot back. And on the way back, he now has all the goods and all the people, essentially, of the land who are worth taking. He has all of it, and he meets this guy Melchizedek uh, on the way back and gives him a tithe, gives him a tenth of what he had received, and, and, and uh, Melchizedek blessed him. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace, without father or mother. We don't know if that means literally, like, is he the pre-incarnate Christ? Is he someone that God, like, made? <laughs> or does it simply mean that we don't know his lineage, and so he shows up in Scripture as though he has no lineage? We don't know. The author here is saying it's that at the very least, it's the fact that he doesn't come from the line of Aaron, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. There's no record of his birth or his death in Scripture. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, Melchizedek, did not trace his descendant from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, that is, in the Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living, that is, Melchizedek, or we're going to see Jesus here in a minute, spoiler. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth, through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestry, or his, of his ancestor. So the priesthood, in the person of Abraham, came and paid a tithe to Melchizedek, therefore setting up the structure where their priesthood is of a lower caliber than the priesthood of Melchizedek. And in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah was going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law, um, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. The law, don't get this wrong, the law was good. The law was beautiful. The law made a way for fallen man to come to Yahweh and be made, at least for the next year, safe from his wrath. But Jesus, as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, is going to do something entirely different. Verse 12, for when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. Have you ever heard, heard someone grind gears on a manual transmission? Always like, rookie. I grew up on the farm, and our tractor was very hard to get into gear, and my oldest brother would say, you're grinding a lot of hamburger there. Uh, so you're just grinding your gear. That's exactly what the Jews would have heard when they 
when they heard what was just read, that the Levitical priesthood was being put away in favor of the Melchizedekian priesthood. What? That does not work. That does not mesh. Well, it does. Verse 13, he of, uh, he of whom these things are said, Jesus, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe had ever served at the altar. For it is clear that the Lord, our Lord, descended from Judah, not Levi. In regard to that tribe, Moses never said anything about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, in other words, the law, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is indestructible. The grave was not able to hold him. He raised in resplendent glory and lives forever as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, having no beginning, no end. A priest because of a declaration, not because of ancestry. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. See again, the word better. <laughs> not good, the old one wasn't bad, the old one was good, but this is better. And it was not without an oath, just in case you were concerned. Well, was there an oath about this, Jesus priest? Yeah, there was. Others became a priest um, without an oath, in other words, ancestry, but he became a priest with an oath when God said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of these priests, the Old Testament priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. It wasn't term limits, well, it was term limits. It was you die. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He is indestructible. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heaven. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Do you have a point, Sam? Well, yeah, I told you the point at the very beginning. Remember that? Point one, chapter eight, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. We have the real high priest over all of God's creation, over a real relationship with Yahweh. We need to recognize first that we need a, high, we need a priest. You can't come to a God willy-nilly. You need someone to, to pave the way for you, and that person is called a priest. And I have fantastic news. We have a priest that has made a way for us to come to Yahweh. His name is Jesus. Not only do we need a priest, but we need a sacrifice because every God of all time ever that has been written about and the one true God is angry. 
It's not very Sunday school-ish, Jesus, angry God, but he was angry. Why? Because he gave us everything, and we said, I want the apple. We said, I want my independence. I often say, I am Sam-centric. My world revolves around me. I don't even have to try. You are you-centric. And so God was angry when we spurred his love and his command, but a sacrifice is able to be brought. Um, The New Testament calls Jesus' sacrifice a, a soothing sacrifice. It calmed God down. Every high priest, 8.3, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. Remember, um, Kip talked about the five tabernacles? He had the original one. Then you had the temple, those were obvious. Then we had Jesus, who came as the exact representation of of the Father, and his glory, we beheld his glory, John says, and John makes up a Greek word based on the, the noun tabernacle and turns it into a verb and says he tabernacled among us. He was the third tabernacle. And then Jesus um, dies on the cross for our sins, uh, raises from the dead, is taken into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit along with the Father. And now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we are Tabernacle 4.0, the church. As messy and weak and failing and poorly representing as we can be at times, we are indwelt, not just individually, but corporately, the church, capital T, capital C, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we are Tabernacle 4.0. Tabernacle 5.0 is is coming. It's in Revelation 20. It's the bride of Christ. It's the new city of Jerusalem coming down. Uh, It is massive, and in it, he sees no temple because the lamb is there. He is its light. It doesn't need a lamp. That's Tabernacle 5.0 that we're going to be a part of, uh, apparently, unendingly. We'll get to visit that in the new heavens and the new earth. But did you know that there was a tabernacle prime? Did you know that there was one before the tabernacle? I actually said it earlier, but now it says it more clearly. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow. What does it mean that there's a copy of something? It means that there's an original. They serve at a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. There was a real temple in heaven. We get a glimpse of it perhaps in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah is taken somewhere and shown a vision and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And then the, uh, the cherubs uh, speak their praise and the foundations of the temple are shaken. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Jesus gave, is the real priest who made the real sacrifice in the real temple. The ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. It is founded on better promises. 
And if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming when I will make a new covenant. And this is from Jeremiah 31, 31. I would encourage you to read it. We're not going to take time this morning. But in that, we see that in the Old Testament, not after the rejection of Jesus, but because of the frailty of humanity, because of what, what had been and what was going to be, God was going to make a new and better covenant. And that new and better covenant was going to mean that we don't need missionaries anymore. We don't need to evangelize anymore because everyone was going to know the Lord together in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, And we don't sin. Because our hearts of stone are transformed into hearts of flesh that beat after his. Verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Chapter 9 tells us how the, how the uh, holy place was set up. And once it was set up, uh, verse 6, everything had been arranged. The priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In other words, everything that we saw there in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy was a picture of the real thing that was in heaven, that is in heaven as far as we know. And they couldn't cleanse the conscience When you sin now, and you confess it, I would imagine that, like me, your conscience is cleaned of it. When I confess my sins, I go to God, and I confess, I say, hey, what I did here, Father, was was wrong, it was sin. Um, I confess that to you. Um, We are told that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And my conscience rests easy. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, they had no such cleansing of conscience when they would bring the blood of the bull or the goat or the doves or whatever it was and they would sacrifice so they'd walk away and their mind would say, I guess I'm right with God, but their hearts couldn't say it. They weren't cleansed of their, in their consciences. But what Jesus has set up is something that is real. It is not just a pattern. Look at verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. Are you tracking? The real sacrifice in the real temple in heaven. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. I'll tell you, that is one OP priest. He does not need a sacrifice outside of himself. He enters with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. OP is a gaming term for those of you that are slightly older, and it means overpowered. It means that the the system's broken, like it's not fair. It makes the game too easy. That's what Jesus did. He said, not only am I the priest, I am the sacrifice. And I can walk into the real temple in heaven, not just the copy And if all of that cleansed us, cleanse them, look at verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. God does not cleanse our conscience through forgiveness in order to make us feel good. That is a side benefit. He does it so that we are equipped to serve. 
so that we are ready to serve the living God. Verse 24. Well, let's back up to 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things. Are, is, are you, just in case, if you thought, ah, oh, Sam's making up Temple Prime. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, one that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way, to the, high, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own, weak, has to get something else's blood, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. How many times have you sinned? How many times have I sinned? Look at us all together. How, many to, how frequently would Christ have to be offering his blood? But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined once to die and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Just in case we haven't figured it out yet, the preacher continues, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after 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 year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? The law didn't do anything. The law pictured something. And God in his graciousness accepted the picture. Because the real thing was coming. The worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Well, that's not true. Didn't God desire it? Didn't he set up the whole system? Well, he did. But that's not what he really wanted. That's not what he was really waiting on. What he was really waiting on was the son to become enfleshed and offer himself. And so the Christ says, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And from that point forward, the Christ marches relentlessly towards the cross. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you remember that there was no chair in the earthly copy because the work was never done. And Jesus is like, well, he probably says, chair. And there's a chair. And he sits down because he's done his work. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy What's your point, Sam? Verse 19, therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ, because Jesus was the real 
priest offering the real sacrifice in the real temple, because of that, we can have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You and I, weak, frail, sinning, can come boldly into the holy place. Right here, we could have someone come up and preach a sermon on prayer. Because, like, how often, how often do I try to figure out all my problems without going to the seat? But we get to enter by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And remember, the curtain was torn when Jesus died on the cross. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. How do we access this priest and this sacrifice in the real place? And the answer is by faith. It is not a list. There's not a check thing that we can, that we can work through. There is no app that says, if you perform these seven tasks, we do it by faith. And yes, I do believe that there is a moment of conversion when through faith we become transformed, uh, we become a child of God, the Holy Spirit indwells us, but the faith that it's talking about here is not a once and done, I walk down the aisle, I'm good faith. It is a life of faith. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. So what does a life of faith look like? Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we professed. So what? How do we live this life of faith? Endure. Endurance. Steadfast, hold unswervingly. Let us also consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It requires community. Part of the beauty of weekly meetings like this is that we get to see other people who are on the team. If you're watching from home, um, for whatever reason, you probably have teammates right there in the room with you, and if you can see the auditorium, you know that you've got a bunch of teammates right here. But let us consider how we may spur one another on, and the word is provoke, the word is poke. Let us poke one another towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as a habit of some is, but let us encourage one another. Friends, we need to be gathering regularly and this is not a call for monthly or weekly attendance at Sunday morning service for an hour, although it is that. This is not a call to midweek services, although it is that. We desperately need each other. Amen. Our culture tells us that we are sufficient and we're fine to go it alone. That is a lie. We need one another to continue to meet and to see each other and to be reminded of truth. But you know what? Some of you work in places where you have other believers there. You know the Great Commission says, as you are going, make disciples. It does not say go ye. It does not mean depart. It means as you are going, make disciples. Which means that yes, we need to build intentional meetings like this into our lives. 
Thursday night meetings, Wednesday night meetings, ministry meetings throughout the week that we're a part of, Bible studies, small groups, life groups, whatever those things are. We need to do those intentional, specific things, but we also need to find the places where we go all the time and there are other believers, and we need to be provoking one another to love and good deeds there, too. If, you're part, if your kid is part of a travel team of some kind, find the other Christians there, and when you gather, encourage one another. Make that part of discipleship. And all the more as you see the day approaching, part of living a life of faith is to be eternally focused. We need to have the end in mind. We get so here-centered, but this is a blip, which is what chapter 11 tells us. We have a high priest who offered the real sacrifice in the real temple. We're going to listen to a song now. Um, it's from one of my favorite groups in the entire world called Salas. You've never heard of it, and that's okay. You're about ready to, and your life is going to be changed forever. And I really mean it. Uh, my wife and I listen to their Jude one all the time. We listen to Hebrews all the time. They write musical commentaries on Scripture that are theologically sound and uh, skillfully beautiful. We're going to listen to a closing song that they do from Hebrews, and then I'll be back. Now may the God of peace who raised from Shepherd of the sheep By the blood of a covenant That'll never stop, that'll never cease That endures to eternity Glory to the living priest Who ever lives to intercede May this God give you everything you need To endure till the end And his promises receive May he grant you the faith to believe What the Son scarred by the aches and the pains of faith. May the Lord give you strength to endure, to Of the glory. 
So what? All of the majesty and the pomp and circumstance of Exodus, and there was a lot, wasn't there? Just Mount Sinai. All of it was for things that don't actually do what they pictured. Twelve eighteen. you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it beg that no further word would be spoken to them. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. All of the glory of Exodus was foreshadows. How much more glorious, majestic, astounding, mind-boggling, breathtaking, is Jesus. Real priest, real sacrifice, real temple. And if we reject him, there is no hope. There is no other sacrifice. If you want to know what it would look like to take next steps towards knowing Jesus and being a part of everything that I've talked about this morning, I'm going to be right down here like I am after every sermon. I'm here to talk to you and, and, and point you towards somebody who can help you. Uh, if you don't want to talk to me, there's a QR code on your bulletin that's in front of you. You can probably find it wandering around the church as well. You can go to our website and find it and connect and take next steps towards that. If you're already in, you need to endure. You need to find community. You need to be eternally focused. Let me bless you. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back, Jesus, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Blessings on you.